Good morning, everyone. This is a strange time, and we are here with very few of us, and most of you are there watching, and hello. What we're going to do is uh, beginning now. We're live streaming the 1045 service only starting next Sunday. The city of Austin has told us that it should be through the whole month of April, so that's probably what we'll do. We want to continue being in community together. We want to have social distance, but not heart distance or spirit distance from you all. And so um, we will be hosting some Zoom hangouts, and we'll have a tutorial video on how to do that pretty soon. Just watch your um, emails and watch the announcements, and we'll just stay in touch. And please do stay in touch with us and with one another. Kelly Stokes is going to tell you what the religious education program is going to do. We really couldn't be living in a better time for online education and online communication, and we're just going to go with that. So we're going to start having religious education classes for children and youth starting next Sunday before the service through Zoom, and we'll send out information about that this week. And we'll continue to have group meetings and chalice circles and lots of fun learning opportunities online through Zoom and lots of other platforms. Just watch your emails. If you have children or youth, you can check in through the Facebook group. It's called the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin Families Group. If you search for that, find it. Send a member request, and I'll add you to that group. And you, if you're on the email list, we're also sending out announcements that way. We're staying connected. We're staying socially connected, even though we're physically distant. I just want you all to know that during this time, while the church will not be open, I am available to you during the week. Um, you can give me a call at 512-452-6168, extension 1308. If you leave me a voice message there, I will get that and call you right back, or we can even set up a face-to-face meeting. No one has to go through this time alone. Um, you're welcome to call me as well. I'm 1304, or email me, which I check much more often than my voicemail. <laughs> We come from a heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in everyone. Let us be especially um, mindful and effortful during this time to lift up our spark, our spirit, soul's bark, um, and to connect it with other people so that we know that together our spark can speak to one another and we can still feel the warmth and see the light even though we are physically distant. Let us now worship. As with all services, we will start with lighting our chalice. It's the symbol of our faith. It's how we mark who we are. It's how we know that we're connected, because the chalice is our spark. If you'll join me in the words. We seek our place in the world and the answers to our heart's deep questions. As we seek, may our hearts be open to unexpected answers. May the light of our chalice remind us that this is a community of warmth, of wisdom, and welcoming of multiple truths. 
Our call to worship today was penned by Robert T. Weston, a white Unitarian Universalist minister from 1929 until his retirement in 1973. He was a Navy chaplain through World War II. In 1944, he was also subject to scrutiny by the Special Committee on Un-American Propaganda Activities in the House of Representatives while he was leader of All Souls Unitarian Church in Schenectady, New York, where he was tied to several radical groups suspected of being communist fronts. Reverend Weston was a poet and wrote several books of meditations. This writing is part of his book, Seasons of the Soul. It's called, I Will Lift Up My Voice. I will lift up my voice and sing, whatever may befall me. I will still follow the light which kindles song. I will listen to the music arising out of grief and joy alike. I will not deny my voice to the song. For in the depth of winter, song, like a bud peeping through the dry crust of earth, brings back memory and creates anew the hope and anticipation of spring. Out of a world that seems barren of hope, song decries beauty in the shapes of leafless trees, lifts our eyes to distant mountain peaks, which, even if we see them not, remind us that they are there, waiting and still calling us to come up higher. Out of the destruction of dear hopes, out of the agony of heartbreak, Song rises once more to whisper to us that even this is but the stage setting for a new beginning, and that we shall yet take the pieces of our hearts and put them together in a pattern of deeper, truer lights and shades. I will lift up my voice in song, for in singing I am myself renewed, and the darkness of night is touched by the promise of a new dawn for light shall come again. In conversation with others, I get asked a lot, what is it that holds you together if there is no central religion? It is our faith, our creed, our mission that holds us as one, especially in the time when being as one feels the most difficult. So join me as we affirm our mission statement, that which keeps us whole. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. And author Jody Colt. Colt is a white New England author living in New Hampshire. This is from her novel, My Sister's Keeper a story about a girl who is fighting to find a way to grieve and reclaim her life in the wake of decisions made for her. There should be a statuette of limitation on grief, a rule book that says it's all right to wake up crying, but only for a month, that after 42 days you will no longer turn with your heart racing, certain you have heard her call out your name that there will be no fine imposed if you feel the need to clean out her desk, take down her artwork from the refrigerator, turn over a school portrait as you pass, if only because it cuts you fresh again to see it, that it's okay to measure the time she has been gone the way we once measured her birthdays. 
Now is the time where we draw upon our strength and the strength of each other to find our center, our balance, that place where we commune with one another. I'm going to ask you to breathe with me by taking in the breath that you can, holding it and letting it go, feeling the cool and the heat as they're exchanged, feeling your shoulders relax, being able to expand your chest once more. Breathe with me. Breathe in and breathe out. As we continue in this attitude of meditation, seeking the quiet within, let us light candles, either physically for the few that are here or at home, or the candle within. Ignite your spark and feel it light you up. Give it all your sorrow, your joy, your hopes, and your memories, and let it burn bright.
I know a lot of us are holding a lot right now. We carry a lot. Because there's so much uncertainty around us right now. We don't know what each day is going to bring. We don't know what the news is going to say. Some people will lose their jobs. Some risk their homes. This is a stressful time. And with stress comes a lot of hurt and a lot of grief. And we see you. And we ask, how may we support you? I've brought my fair share of sorrows to this altar. And I've left them here for all of you to bear with me. Just like the fireball in January, we bring our worries and fears, our pains, all to the candles, to the meditations, to our prayers in whatever way they manifest, so that they are no longer only ours to carry. For that grace... I am grateful. There's an old Swedish proverb that is so dear to my heart. And it says, Sorrow shared is sorrow halved. Joy shared is joy doubled. It's difficult to remember the good when there's so much, so much bad. It sometimes really bugs me that there is no handbook when it comes to grieving. This is not a surprise to anyone that there's not one, of course. However, just because there's no brochure out there with the perfect grief guide printed across the front cheerily, it doesn't mean that we're bereft of any sort of guidance. In each one of us, there is an intangible well of wisdom that hastens to help us when we need it most. Some pages are scattered with frantic broken thoughts and doodles in the margins, They speak of emotional highs and lows. Other pages are neatly set and well thought out. They're processed and made into a clear message of centered calm. Combined, much of that experience creates what I like to refer to as a grief Bible, a place where we can look to find answers to our own questions based off of our own learning. My grief Bible personally begins with the line, In grace, in joy, in sorrow, in heartache, I am truly not alone. Grief, of course, is not solely fashioned from the experience of death. Much in our life teaches us lessons of sorrow, and those lessons have their own books within our personal Bibles. Some of mine would be titled things like, Boy Troubles, and What the Heck Do I Do With My Life, and Student Loan Interest Rates. That last one hurts so much. (laughs) These Bibles of our own making are filled with a few short books, with only a passage or two, and others that span hundreds of pages with sayings and life experiences and lessons. Some are not yet written, and others are only in the infancy of them being pinned. Because I know my grief best, And what I have carried away from a lot of these experiences, I'd like to highlight a few takeaways. Like in book 19, Kevin, my first love. This book taught me that the heart never heals completely. Not with time, not with distance, not with age or wisdom or any other method or measure. 
Though the pieces may be swept back into a pile, lovingly reshaped into a semblance of its original form, a shattered heart will never be without its cracks. But as Cohen said, that's how the light gets in. Kevin's book taught me that no matter how much we think we actually want our hearts to heal completely, they won't. And perhaps that's the most beautiful first lesson, that fact, they won't. We want so desperately to not hurt anymore, to not feel that sting, the pain, the longing. When we lose someone we feel we can't go on without, and our whole life is in an infinite number of pieces, the worst news we want to hear is that we will never really get over the loss. There is good news in that, though. There is. And it's, we will never really get over the loss. The reason it's good news is that because you will never get over the loss, so you'll never get over the memory. Eventually, it might not hurt as bad when you do recall them. That itself is a gift. But the wound will still be there. My mom told me in one of her many personal parables that grieving is like a robin with a broken wing. There's hope that with time the wing will heal and the robin will fly again, but the flight might be less sure than before. It will take to the skies once more, but not before going through pain and healing, through growth, to be strong enough for the task. Kevin's book ends as a lesson on on the transience of life, that impermanence that we all experience, and the mortal beauty of death. And yes, as morbid as it makes me sound right now, There is very real beauty in surviving the death of a loved one. It just takes time to see it, if you ever do. Book 27, Trella, my my last grandmother. This book taught me that sometimes we must rescue ourselves by whatever means necessary long enough to carry on until we can fall apart safely later. One of my favorite movies of all times still magnolias, because I'm that Southern, puts Trella's Trella's book into words perfectly. Later, in the movie, at a funeral scene, laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. It's a simple line. It's so poignant. There's power in both. And together. My grandmother died surrounded by her descendants on a Saturday afternoon. One of her calling cards in life was a fastidiously maintained manicure done in cherry bomb red with almond shaped tips. It was her luxury that she indulged in each week on a Friday, usually with her friend Magazine. After she breathed her last, we all kind of panicked and started to fall apart. We still had so much to do that we needed to be a bit more together in our heads, and I took it upon myself to find something, anything, to get me out of that all-too-real moment and maybe be able to help my family in some way. And then I noticed her manicure, and I quipped, well, at least her nails look good. And we all stopped. And we looked at them, and then the chuckling began. 
We were still crying, but at that moment of absurdity, that lifelong ritual my grandmother held sacred until com- uh, after coming uh, to Austin in the 60s, it rescued us enough to keep moving forward just a bit longer. Then comes book 31. Mom. This book taught me, at the time, the most valuable lesson I ever learned. Because I learned that I am not the person that so many other people told me I was. That I wasn't just a steady rock, and I didn't have to be. Over the years, I learned that I'm quite tender, that I genuinely love the emotions in this life, and that the message I was told for all my years before was keeping me back from being able to call on my greatest source of true strength. My community. You. All of you. I was the only one of my mom's children she told about the final cancer diagnosis on Christmas Day in 2011. When I asked her why she told only me, she said, because you're the strong one. So I bore that strong label with me as if it were all I was. I pushed others away so that they wouldn't have to bear this thing that I, the rock of strength, told myself I must carry alone. But then her death came three years later. And it proved I was anything but that strong person I had been told. Or at least simply strong. And when I realized that fact, I became very unsure as to who then I was. I just wanted to hold up that box of puzzle pieces that held my life and just shake it out onto the table and watch all the pieces fall perfectly so that I could understand what it is I was feeling inside and not feeling that grief that I was carrying. Because I feared... I was going to disappear if it went on too much longer. The last few sentences of her book read, You are never ready, even when you are ready. You are never strong enough, even when you are strong enough. And you are never too old to feel like the child at the loss of a parent. After mom died, I returned to seminary almost immediately, which was mistake number one. Then, gratefully, the Reverend Dr. Blair Money, one of my professors, sat with me for hours while I fell apart. I cried onto the shoulder of his perfectly tailored suits so many times that I'm pretty sure I owed him thousands in dry-cleaning money. He was the only Presbyterian minister I loved more than Mr. Rogers, and y'all, I love Mr. Rogers. Oh my gosh, that is a voice of my childhood. He's the reason I stand here today. He once told me, Blair did, you will survive this no matter what. And you have survived. And you will continue to survive even this. They are simple words, a bit pithy, overused. But in that moment he said them, just two days after her death, they became bread to me. In a lot of ways, he became a surrogate father and a chaplaincy mentor. Blair was a gift I never thought I would receive. A year and a half ago, I added book 35, Blair Money. 
adding this particular part of my Bible felt like losing a parent all over again. His story in my life ends with the line, We will say goodbye to our mothers and fathers many times in our lives. But only once can we say goodbye to the many mothers and fathers we have had. Grief hits us at times we don't expect. Otherwise, it's not grief. Of course, we often see death attended by grief. This is part of the human condition. But it so often follows closely on the heels of lost relationships, of broken trust, or feeling that there is more to do, and we are too small or unempowered to do the task needed. Right now, as a nation, many of us are experiencing the grief that stems from trauma and the uncertainty in which we all find ourselves. There's a human-made food shortage because of the uncertain nature of our situation and a culture imbued with a strong what-if mentality. We keep watching reports of more cases of COVID-19 being confirmed in our communities, and we're being told to hold steady and remain calm when our brain is screaming at us to do anything but that. This viral disease comes with a toll for each one of us. We will all add a book to our grief Bibles as we move through the waves of illness as well as the unknown recovery period. Our daily lives have been thrown out of balance and upset greatly. Not only has our comfort been shaken from our grip, but also our security. We see videos and hear stories of people fighting over basic staples of life. Folks hoard more than they could possibly need or use. Much of it may be wasted in the end. All in some desperate attempt to reclaim that comfort and security, that feeling of being in control of their lives. This is human. Many will experience the grief of feeling responsible to care for their family, however that's defined, and yet helpless to do so in the current situation. There will be parents who cannot feed their children when they're out of school. There will be people who face the fact that they cannot take care of their elders. There will be folks who lose their jobs, lose their homes, because work has been taken. Because we have been told to stay apart. And many live off of the together. Some will experience the grief that comes from the presence of anxiety, being inflated by a media and a seemingly uncaring government. That the unknowns of those what-ifs will build up further until that's all they can see in their lives. And still, others will, in the end, experience the grief of surviving the death of a loved one. See, when humans feel that our sure footing is threatened, we lash out for whatever we can hold on to. That is human. Be that money, food, toilet paper, or other humans. And now, because of actions and circumstances wildly beyond our control, we stand raw to that fear, exposed to the chill of these many forms of loss. And I can't say how this book will end. I can't predict the final line, and I dare not speak what is not yet to be into this world. 
I will, however, say this. In this time, it is best to remember our community and keep each other in our minds and our hearts. Check in with one another. Help others remain steady as they do the same for you. Draw from our collective grief Bibles, if only to be reassured that with all things, this is temporary, and it too shall pass. A lesson from a long book of Proverbs in my Bible comes with a warning to remember that in ways our society often shares the lesson that grief should be peripheral, that it's almost rude to grieve. You may be asked how you are, but really, some folks only want to hear, oh, I'm okay, I'm all right, I'm fine, thank you. When you really want to be saying, I'm still shattered, I haven't showered in four days, I haven't eaten since I can't remember, and I really don't want to pay my electric bill, because who cares? We want to offer absolution to one another from that responsibility to care, because sometimes it's easier so we're told. And because we realize that other humans just sometimes don't know what to do. In conversation, the complications that come from grieving tend to be avoided. People feel embarrassed for you when you talk about your grief. So you let them off the hook, and that awkwardness surrounding your fear of this part of life can just be moved past. However, here's the deal. Sometimes you just have to talk about what it is. Because talking about your grief is like opening a pressure valve. It lets out all that steam so you can actually take a breath again. When I talk about my grief, in times that it's very heavy or loud in my head, I feel like I become more visible again. It feels like I'm more able to live and move along in my life because I no longer bear it all alone. Just because I was told I was strong enough doesn't mean that I have to be. One of the gifts that comes from talking about your grief and what you are grieving is that it provides profound clarity and removes the gauze that hides things you never thought you knew or that you remembered. And though it's growing alongside yours, I hope my grief Bible is as complete as I can make it right now. This chain of stories and feelings that I have scraped together through my own faulty memory all culminates with this one final lesson. Our grief Bibles have nothing to do with our actual grief. Yes, the pain is there. The loss is there. And those pages, they are bound and sealed for our entire lives, stained upon the pages. But they are not the end result of this book. There's a song that I love that says, A heart that's broken is a heart that's been loved. This grief Bible, our gathered mass of stories and memories and hopes and proverbs, it's our testament to the fact that there is somewhere deep within us something more. Not every story of sorrow leads to a positive outcome. Some have no greater lesson than to survive. But many do come back to being a source of knowledge and guidance for fighting that final page 
to our otherwise heartbreaking book and being able to draw on it when we once again need it. Never close your grief Bible. Keep it close. Use it to care. Say with me the words with which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Comfort me. Comfort me. Comfort me, O my soul. Comfort me. Comfort me. Comfort me, O my soul. I hope the rest of the day finds you in peace. As you go about your lives, remember that we are here with you in some way or another. Be good to one another and to yourselves.